So many people never see themselves represented in the classroom. PhD programs offer little, if any, pedagogy training, let alone having to do with intersectionality or decoloniality. We live in a time where old classroom conventions and ways of thought are proving to be radically insufficient. New approaches are desperately needed. Hello, this is Justin. And this is Ashley. Welcome to Pedagogies for Peace, intersectional and decolonial teaching podcast. An audio series that foregrounds critical pedagogies with a focus on intersectionality and decoloniality. We come from varied backgrounds. From political science, feminist international relations, native studies, critical media studies, American studies, and ethnic studies. From philosophy, peace studies, gender studies, and political theory. To bring you insights from thought leaders and offer glimpses of what could be. From transformations inside the classroom to rethinking what is possible. Hello, everyone. Today, we are speaking to Dr. Matthew Wildcat, who's an assistant professor of political science and native studies at the University of Alberta. He is a member of the Erminskin Cree Nation. His current research is on relational governance, the Relational Governance Project, and looks at how First Nations create forms of shared jurisdiction with each other. Wildcat is a research fellow with the Wakotawin Law and Governance Lodge, and is the director of the Prairie Relationality Network. We really appreciate you, Matt, being with us today, and I could offer it over to you to see if you can introduce yourself in any way you'd like, and also just give us a sense of how you understand your work fitting into this podcast theme of decolonial or intersectional pedagogy. And welcome to the show. Absolutely. Well, just one quick clarification. I'm one of the directors of the Prairie Relationality Network, one of seven. And that work actually is some of my favorite work. That's where like in Canada, we would call it your kind of like your partnership work, right? So how you create connections and build out substantive relationships with other scholars. And a lot of times, you know, from my understanding is it's actually very difficult to build substantive research relationships founded on actual connection where you have a, a group of people all working in kind of the same direction. And so I actually feel really lucky to be part of a you know, a body of seven directors where not only are we all kind of congregated around this idea of relationality, or as we would describe it in different kind of indigenous languages, ideas around kinship, relationships, seeing the world as interconnected. So in in Cree, that's Wakotuin. But that, to me, it feels really, it's a really special thing to be, have personal friendships that lead to us. What I think is, is doing something of substance, I hope, for Indigenous peoples in the university, but ultimately for Indigenous peoples outside the university in terms of the self-determination of our communities. So I'll, I'll leave it at that for now as a personal introduction. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about generally what your pedagogy is like and specifically about to what extent or in what way you might bring in some of these concepts or practices of relationality into the classroom. Absolutely. A lot of my pedagogy is is almost like um, me trusting the instinct around how to not make a classroom awkward, right? What does it mean to have a, a, a dynamic classroom where people feel at ease to be able to talk through difficult concepts, work through difficult issues? And, and certainly like from, you know, everything I teach is in the realm of Indigenous politics. And within that realm, you have to deal with really difficult concepts around colonization and, you know, these are kind of very sedimented structural injustices that exist in, you know, in our societies here in, in North America, right? And so, you know, how do you make a space where people 
can, you know, I, I think many students feel very, it's difficult to talk about these issues from various perspectives. So one, a lot of non-Indigenous students will feel that it's not their place, that they don't have a, you know, they don't want to step over themselves and say something wrong. And then for a lot of Indigenous students, there's various ways in which they relate to indigeneity where they maybe sometimes don't feel a certain authenticity or an ability to claim indigeneity in, in certain sorts of ways. But then also colonialism has impacted these indigenous students in all, all these like really profound ways as well. And so it's difficult to create comfortable spaces where people can talk about the way in which their own lives are actually deeply affected by it. And so you know, dealing with all these difficult issues, it, it's, I feel kind of strange in saying that, you know, the main way I try to deal with it is just by instinctually trying to create an environment where people feel comfortable, non-awkward and doing all these things. But that's really the driving force of it. And, and in that being the driving force, really, I think what it creates in me is a, is a motivation or a, a drive to think through, okay, what is it about creating a space where people feel comfortable and where people feel like they can really say what they they think and they need to say that deals with all of these other kind of like issues of power, positionality, and all these kind of like intersecting forces that that students are facing, right? And so it's working so far. And what I would say is where students find my courses challenging is not in that they find them triggering or or they that they feel left unsupported in them, but that what I do is I really put a lot of faith and a lot of, it's a lot of faith and I, I give students a lot of leeway to create things for themselves and they find that difficult because they're taking on all of these responsibilities of, of having to engage at very high levels within, within the classroom. Matt, what does that look like? How do you ensure that comfort and ease? Students have a lot of resilience and, and in fact, sometimes there's almost a cathartic moment where when students feel like they have a, a license to share the hurt that they've experienced in the world. And so part of it is that for me, at least, was is you have to take a leap of faith and have a little bit of tolerance for risk in terms of introducing these spaces where people could talk about very difficult issues and not believe that it's going to go completely off the rails, right? And so I'll give you a couple examples to to illustrate it. And in none of these examples, like I would redo all of these activities again, but I would never expect it to always go perfectly. Like I, th I think there's always a possibility that it will go very poorly, right? But it's that willingness to accept an outcome that there is a chance that things will go very poorly. But what you're also accepting is that when it goes well, it goes incredibly super well, right? And so in the fall, I was a co-instructor for a very large section of Introduction to Political Science at U of A, uh, Political Science 101. And so week nine, so this is about two thirds of the way through the course, we did a, a unit on civil society. And what we did in that unit is we used some of the teachings from Professor Down Your Way in the States, actually, or in Boston, uh, Marshall Gantz, who teaches at Harvard, I think in the Kennedy School of Government, but he has this method called public narrative. And public narrative is, you know, can you draw on the experiences or moments that have shaped you to be able to tell a story to others about what your values are, right? And he has this kind of line like, show, not tell, right? Don't tell people your, your values and what you believe. Show them what you believe by being able to communicate and relate these moments which have kind of like fundamentally shaped you and influenced your, your outlook on the world, right? And so to me, this is was probably the most risky is we ran the exercise with our TA. So we had eight different sections in this course, eight different sections of 50 students a piece. So there, you know, there's about 400 students in this course. 
And then the TAs are asked to go replicate it in their sections of 50 students apiece, right? And so in the, in the course, we ask students to pick an issue in civil society that they connect with, right? And that they're committed to, they believe in, right? That's motivated. And so people have, you know, of course, a, a whole wide range, like environmentalism, Black Lives Matter came up a lot, the Me Too movement, and, you know, different issues around patriarchy. All of these things students are bringing up, but they're bringing up in a very abstract way, which is what we w- would expect, right? And, and that's often how we're actually taught to express things in university classrooms is is at a very abstract and generalized way. And so the way the workshop unfolds is students bring up all these issues that they're connected to. And then we say, what was the moment in your life where you were drawn to this issue, where you really connected with this issue, right? And so, you know, this is a a very risky thing, right? Because it's, you know, we would think we have this language over like students being triggered or that, you know, we're, we're doing a risky thing in terms of asking students to share their the hurt that they've had in the world, but also we're doing it in the context where we're saying like, this is a a way in which we can communicate to each other the necessity and value of acting on these issues as well. Right. And so students brought up a lot of really difficult stories and, you know, there was tears shed in the classroom. Students said some of the seminars that I sat in on, students made me cry with their stories as well. And, you know, it's like, it's all very difficult stuff. But what happened from that week was students started reaching out to each other. And like, I really connected with your story that you told. It really resonated with me. And in our course evaluations, one of the things that students kept bringing up over and over again is this was the only class where I actually made friends. And it was from that week, right? And it was people and people caring for each other too and reaching out to each other afterwards. And like, wow, that that must've been really difficult for you to share. You know, are you okay? Are you doing all right? And, and students, it was a, it was a humongous bonding experience for all the students. And I think, it allowed everyone also to see that the way in which, you know, there's hurts in the world is not exclusive to any one group of people, right? But it's people experience these hurts in, in different sorts of ways. And it was, you know, it was this kind of an incredible moment where it like, and and for me, it was, you know, the ability to, in a class of 400, where it would be really easy to get lost, that all of these you know, micro interactions happen where these personal friendships were made afterwards. And, and like, I think for me, the, the one that stunned me the most was there was a student from rural Alberta, which is, you know, Alberta is a very conservative province who identified as queer, but was had never told anyone and actually came out in that classroom and told people like, you know, for me, <laughs> I identify with LGBTQ issues. And the reason why I identified is because I... I cannot openly identify as queer in my family and my community. And, I, and you know, but these were moments where you would think it could really go poorly, but made the class from the sounds of a lot of the students and made the class like one of the best classes that they had taken all semester. Wow, that's a lot. Just the thing, the thing that strikes me is like maybe thinking about the amount of care and vulnerability and also like, I don't know, emotional labor, but I don't mean that in a negative way, but like that it requires to move 400 students through such a personal and vulnerable exercise. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, but it's a lot. I know. Yeah. And, and it's like, I should have like a warning, like, you know, don't try this at home. Right. And it's not like, you know, I'm not saying every teacher should try to do these sorts of things, but you know, for myself, and it wasn't just myself, like, you know, especially my spouse, um, Renee Bosile, who's also one of the co-instructors, who also practices this method. And then our TAs, 
really buying into it, right? And and I think for even the TAs, like at the the start of our our pilot session, where it's just the instructors and the TAs, they I think had a, a lot of skepticism. But by the end of it, they saw it, right? And so you know, part of it is we show these clips, and we have a and we had like kind of detailed instructions of like you know things to say and. And it was really made clear to students, this is not a requirement for you to share your stories. Like, this is not a requirement of the class. But we assume that some students would, right? And because, you know, in our plenary with 50 students, we know only four or five are going to talk in the, the plenaries. You know, so there's all these safeguards built into it. But then part of it is that, you know, for myself and Renee, we have these long histories of doing facilitative group facilitation, right? F- facilitative work. And so it's, again, like that drive that it's almost like a hunger in a way to like, how do you create these really dynamic, rich environments for people to interact with each other and to have group dialogue? And part of that is you just, you need the experience a little bit of, of how you how you go about doing that. Matt, you're you're part of the uh, Wakatoan Law and Governance Lodge, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and then you mentioned the, the Prairie Relational Network and, and the collaboration there. Can you talk a little bit about how your community engagements in your research and your practice influence how you show up in the classroom or how you teach in the classroom? Yeah, there's a, a new professor at U of A, uh, his name is Josh Pierre, and he has a Canada Research Chair in Critical Disability Studies. And he hosted a, a session on teaching and pedagogy in the fall. And it, it was uh, Jay Dolmage gave this great presentation and it really made me think about my teaching in all these different sorts of ways. And, and so one of the things that I do with my teaching is that I don't teach weekly units anymore. I teach only by multi-week units. So in a standard class for myself, it'll either be three units or four units that I'll use. And so you give up a lot in some ways, right? Because you can't talk about all the things that you want to talk about, right? And, and for me, though, part of that is sometimes I'm not sure pedagogically if there's a good kind of reason behind teaching a new unit or a new concept every week. Like if you think back to your own undergrad, sometimes you don't even remember a course, right? Like if you take 40 courses in your undergrad and if I had to name all 40 right now, I like, I'd probably get to like 30, right? So there's like no way. whole whole courses, right? Where you've literally forgotten the entire fact that you're even in it. And so, you know, I think it's, it's a stretch to begin with that we expect we're going to teach people 12 different or 13 different things in a, in a course. So one of the things in, in narrowing it down to only three or four units, the reason why I did it was not necessarily that kind of pedagogical reason of like thinking about memory and like have a little more imprint in people's minds or experiences, but was actually thinking about the courses I teach. There's a lot of Indigenous students who have very difficult life circumstances, right? And in the course of the semester, things are just going to come up for them, right? It's like family issues. There may be mental health things going on as well. And so the unit actually was meant to give people a little bit of flexibility because it's like if they miss one week of the unit, then it's not a big deal because there's other parts of the unit in which they can engage. And then all the assessments are kind of always to like engage with the unit as a whole rather than with any specific part or specific week. And so if they miss one week, that's fine because they can just engage with the other weeks that are going on in the unit. And, and so and I like, you know, explain this to students like to build it in. Right. But then this talk by Jay Dolomich, I realized that actually I was building in accommodations. So one of the things that, you know, they talk about this with tests, right? And especially now it's a big thing because we have all these tests which are being proctored online and it creates all these accommodation issues and, and they're just not accounted for, right? And, and so with this move to units, what I realized is that I was, what I was really trying to do is I was trying to bake in accommodations for Indigenous students. Like, you don't have to come explain all the things going on in your life to me. I, I'm not going to like judge or assess whether it was okay or not for you to miss 
this week or, or that week. I'm just going to build accommodations right into the content of the course so that if you need a week, if you have a week where you're just, you're just not going to be present, then it's, it's fine. It's, it's not a big deal. Right. And that these assignments that I assign at the end, I, I usually call them like uh, comprehension portfolio. So it's, it just is asking students to like demonstrate your comprehension of the material within this three or four week unit. And I'll build different activities into it. It baked in all these accommodations, which I was primarily trying to do for Indigenous um, students, right? And so for me, that is like, I know I'm not necessarily answering your question around, you know, how I deal with communities, but but in a way, for me, I was trying to respond to what is it to deal or what is it to serve Indigenous students at the University of Alberta, of, of whom there's, there's, I think, 1,500, maybe 2,000 Indigenous students at the University of Alberta. So it's like, how is this made easier for everyone? Um, and and so for, for me, that was, I think, the probably the biggest strategy I've used to try to really think through what it means to be almost in, in a way like embedded within an Indigenous community at the UV. I really like this idea of like, like building accommodations into the syllabus as a principle of pedagogy. Sometimes this is talked about as like universal design. So like, what do we need to do to set up a course such that people from a wide variety of circumstances, abilities, et cetera, are able to participate really as like full members of the class rather than like the sort of accommodations based perspective, which is like, okay, we're going to tailor this class in each individual circumstance to people who need quote unquote exceptions. Right. And so there's yes. like a, a different way of thinking about setting up access in the classroom on the basis of like, I don't know, addressing access needs for the greatest number of people already built into the classroom rather than dealing with access as like a, a wholly individualized issue that then requires kind of like exceptions after mm-hmm. the fact. I'm wondering, I don't know, if you could talk a little bit about how you, like your personal narrative of like coming to this form of pedagogy, because I think it's not the one that we, it's certainly not the one that I was, you know, (laughs) came up with as a student. It's not, it's not the pedagogy that I had encounters with as a graduate student or as a graduate student teacher. So maybe talking a little bit more about your like own pedagogy narrative path. That's a really good question. And I've, I've actually never been pushed on that front. So I'm going to have to come up with that off the top of my head. But certainly... Inspired by your own, ped- your own yes, narrative. I'm always <laughs> making, other, I'm making other people do it. And then I never... Yeah, this don't is do a comfortable it space. The comfortable space, Matt, you can share with us. So, okay. So I, I think for me, what I've really thought about it is that just in graduate school and in a way, I, almost every single professor I, I took graduate courses did this in, in some way or another but like you just you show up and they're like what do you think about the readings like tear them apart and also you know kind of asking very like conceptually very difficult questions and then the space almost becoming about grandstanding right of like who's the cleverest and also like you know who has the most kind of sometimes like who has the most radical insights about the readings too right and and it's like a competitive environment in all the wrong ways. Like I think competition can be good because I can be motivated by competition. But to me, that was just like competition in a, in a way that was very destructive, right? And so that was the context in which I was trying to think: How do my classrooms look different? How do we how do we feel like we're engaged in a a full, wholesome venture together, right? As, as a as a group, how do we 
build off of each other's energies to make this happen, right? Or to, you know, to make a, a really dynamic learning experience. And so the thing which really changed, probably changed my whole way I could even possibly teach was when I was younger, I went to this program in Toronto called Youth as Facilitative Leaders. And so like in my late teens and early 20s, like I was fairly precocious as, as an individual. And um, I saw an email, Youth as Facilitative Leaders Program. It was in Toronto run by this group called ICA Canada or Institute of Cultural Affairs. They, they have offices all over the world. But they the core of this method is called a focus conversation. And so the focus conversation is it's varying levels of how people engage in trying to think through an issue. And it's being able to like have conversations where you are able to lead people through all four stages of this conversation to get people on the same page. And it may seem gimmicky, but like I use it weekly and it just, it works, right? I, I don't, I don't know what to say about it, but it, it, it works. And it, it's really helpful for a lot of students because I think the way in which most university classrooms are run is we jump straight to interpretive level conversations, which tend to be very general, very abstract, asking a lot of why and meaning questions. And it's, you know, for many students, it's hard to just jump headfirst into the pool like that when it comes to conversations. So the way in which the, you know, this method focused conversation operates is that you have these four levels. So the first is like what they call objective or they use the term facts, which as a, or like a social theorist, you're always kind of a little hesitant about, but uh, what they mean is like how a group perceives reality. Right. And, and so it is about like how it's not that reality just presents itself to us, but that, you know, we, we have to perceive a reality. Right. And it's not only just about how a single individual, but how a group together perceives reality collectively. And so, first of all, it's doing that. It's like getting people's perceptions of something just very at a very basic level on the table. And then there, it has this reflective level, which a lot of people confuse with kind of interpretive level skills. Uh, and, you know, being like introspective and stuff, but the, ref the reflective level for them, what it means is like, what is your reaction or what is your instinct to something, right? Like, and what kind of associations do you make? What does it remind you of? Because uh, for people, sometimes you have very kind of gut emotional reactions to something that is brought up because of, you know, things in your past or your, you know, your understanding of society and those being able to discuss those in a very open way is I think very important. And then you can move to more interpretive level conversations about meaning and why. And then, and finally, you know, decisional questions around what do we do with this conversation that we've had, right? And for me, if I had never gotten that training, I, you know, I'm not sure if I would have had the same kind of focus on facilitative methods in my teaching and, but also just in my work in general, right? Like for me, like group facilitation is like what I live for. Like this is the the zest of life is is getting people in a room and having very difficult conversations with each other and and obviously it's really hard but like the you know the sense of accomplishment when you can work with a group to address very difficult questions and people feel good afterwards it is like that's i i hope to find more ways in which i can build that into my both my teaching and my research so you didn't have any group facilitation training at the university you just learned it elsewhere that's right. Yeah, no, it was this email and it was, it was funny because I, I sent them a message applying and they said, oh, we're sorry, we're not accepting any people from Toronto or from outside of Toronto. And I wrote them back and I said this big speech about how I didn't think that was fair and that, I, you know, I wasn't asking them to pay for me. I was just asking them to let me attend and that I would figure out how to get there on my own. <laughs> so they found that convincing. And then me and a buddy of mine, Chris Koistra, and we went because we were part of this 
group with the government of Alberta actually called the Youth Advisory Panel, and it worked in the Ministry of Children's Services. And it was a panel where a bunch of people between the ages of 16 and 20 were given kind of like different policy initiatives and were gave feedback on it. And, and that group actually ended up paying for us to go. But the facilitator of that group, Harriet Switzer, she was an amazing facilitator. And I think she is what opened up for me what the power of group facilitation can really look like. And, and I, you know, for those, all of those experiences kind of set it off for me from there. You know, while it was a huge um, part of my interest and something that I did, what I, there was another kind of set of experiences where I was going up to Canada's North. I was being invited by all these, um, they called themselves emerging leaders, but it was all these young Indigenous people in Northern Canada who were organizing all these events and putting together these organizations which uh, dealt with social justice issues. So Dene Nawo in the Northwest Territories and, and our voices. And I was working with them to help them create strategic plans and group visioning. And some of those sessions were really amazing. But in particular, I remember the one that was most uh, impactful for me is I got invited to work with this group in the Yukon. I'd never met any of them before except for one of their members. And so I was going into a room and there's about 25 people showing up every day. And they themselves didn't know each other. They're from 16 or 17 different communities across the Yukon. They're all meeting for the first time, but they're trying to deal with this issue of youth suicide, which was really affecting Indigenous youth in the Yukon. And they wanted to create an organization which would create a venue for people to act uh, on this issue of youth suicide and also create leadership opportunities for people. And, you know, it was so nerve wracking. It was, I was being put in a situation where I had never kind of been, had such a level of difficulty and complexity in trying to facilitate something. But I just, you know, I used the same techniques that I always use and I, I stuck to my guns. And, and the people there were a really exceptional group of, of leaders and, and individuals. And like the feeling of camaraderie and solidarity that existed at the end of those three days. Like, I'm not sure I'll ever experience something like that again in my life. Right. And, and all those opportunities that I got uh, and being invited to the Yukon to the Northwest Territories to work with all of these emerging Indigenous leaders probably really sedimented my belief that that's what a classroom should look like too, is that, you know, these, these facilitative sessions that we were doing, that's what classrooms should also look like. And, and that's how I came around to it all. No, I was just going to comment. I wasn't going to ask a question. I was just going to say, like, it's a theme we've talked about a lot on the podcast, both, especially in both Justin, when Justin and I interviewed each other on the podcast, that we both come out of community organizing and that a lot of the way that we both facilitate our classrooms comes out of community organizing, group facilitation, lots of ways that, you know, sort of outside the academy, people that are coming together to embark on a common project or to learn something, right? Like the way that these groups, uh, techniques that are are developed in these spaces, how separate they often are from the way we talk about pedagogy in the academy, and yet how obviously aligned, right, these projects are. Like when we have a classroom space, we're like trying to get a bunch of young people, but adults together in order to think about something and in order to, to create a project moving forward. It, it definitely also points to like the importance of why we're doing this stuff, right? That it's not just um, sort of these intellectual endeavors, but there's actually a community. And, and in this case, what Matt, you're sharing is, is around suicide and, and youth suicide. So it highlights the importance of what we're actually doing. You know, it, it makes me think about, I, I feel like sometimes in uh, liberal arts educations, we're too quick to see the ground of like applied skills 
to like business schools and, you know, engineering schools and, and, you know, all these other parts of the university where like having applied skills are, are, you know, really super important, but for all these kind of like, you know, as I might say like part of the, the neoliberalization of, of universities. Right. And, and what I mean by that is that you, t- you have an education in order to go become employable afterwards. And so to me, we, sh- we shouldn't be so quick to, um, not think through what are the applied skills that we teach in these critical spaces, right? In the, in spaces where we're also talking about social justice. And like, um, I, I've kind of stopped talking about this, but one of the things that I, I told a lot of students is uh, ideas don't have agency, right? Ideas can't act in the world on their own. They can only act because of humans taking them up and utilizing them, right? And, and from that standpoint, then organizing is kind of a, a fundamental skill which we need to cultivate within people in classrooms. And, and the idea that, you know, the point of trying to create a better world is not to like make the most immaculate, carved out, you know, refined theory, which helps us to under understand something. The point of ideas is to like help people connect with each other and to move together in the same direction in order to affect change right and sometimes in fact i think having the most kind of like pristine immaculate theories which we're kind of taught to do uh in the university isn't helpful because only a a small amount of people will ever get that level of have that bandwidth to devote to that level of sophistication and precision and and understanding an idea right and in fact and sometimes the the ideas which are going to be most uh, impactful or infective are ideas that people can easily communicate to each other, right? And in order to be able to easily communicate ideas to each other, they need like a level of like transferability or like portability of like, can I hear something and then turn around and, and tell it to someone else and for that idea to still be like, you know, powerful and, and impactful, right? And I think if you, you know, so one having a, a sense of that, you know, the most important thing in the classroom is not to understand exactly what so-and-so said in chapter two of their book, but is to have kind of a, a general conversation about the, the really kind of valuable things that come out of scholarship, how it connects with people's lives. But then I think just as importantly, or maybe more importantly, is to be able to match that with all of these kind of applied organizing skills um, that students can take up and, and use to go create change afterwards, right? And, and teaching those, I think, is really hard. And that's something that I've spent the last couple of years really trying to build out. And like this semester is probably the first semester where I believe that I'm teaching these applied skills with any sort of um, competency, right? And it, it took me years to kind of to get there and not a lot of models to follow. I'm, I'm super curious about like what what these like new assignments or like new approaches to like teaching these organizing skills look like in your <laughs> political science classrooms. The true, the true yeah. organizer comes out. Yeah. Okay. So right now I'm teaching a course. It's called Partnership Strategies, and and the reason why I call it Partnership Strategies is just because it's taught as part of a certificate that's called Indigenous Governance and Partnership, and so you know the name is is more so just a nod to the. The title of this program, but in the in the program, I teach public narrative from Marshall Gantz, and then I teach the focus conversation, uh, the ORID, and then finally I teach uh, negotiation strategies, which is actually a carryover from the way in which the course was previously taught. And so, you know, I'll just focus on the first two. Like in the first one with public narrative, you know, in Canada, there's this practice; it's very ubiquitous within public life of doing 
territorial acknowledgements or land acknowledgements of the Indigenous peoples whose land an event is being hosted on. And while they're really important to come out with it, I think they're an important move and, and gesture at first that, you know, that all these non-Indigenous peoples often recognizing that they exist on, that there's Indigenous peoples who have long, very long histories in these places. You know, over time, they became very, like, very hollowed out and institutions all created very, like, safe acknowledgements of what people would say. And it's easy. It's almost like they're so um, void of meaning now that it's like you take a little nap while someone is, like, saying them, right? And like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rest my eyes here for, my, <laughs> for a minute. So I, I thought, okay, well, uh, we don't want them to go away. Like, they're, they are still valuable. But how might we infuse more meaning into them and to me it's how do we create a sense of urgency that colonialism is something which is still ongoing impacts people's lives and how do we you know allow people to use that space that's been created in in all of these public events and public institutions to be able to communicate some of that urgency around why we need to deal with colonialism and so i use a lot of the things that are coming out of this public narrative method but apply to what were those moments in your life where you first understood that colonialism was a thing and that it was something that was like bad and needed to be dealt with, right? And getting people to kind of plumb the depths of their experiences to be able to communicate to others why dealing with colonialism is urgent. It's not just a matter of acknowledging that Indigenous peoples lived here before, but that it's ongoing and, and needs to be dealt with. And yeah, I know this, some of the students are incredible and um, their moments are very powerful in, in saying like how they were shaped in their realization that this was, that Canada had this like really dark, awful history that also still exists in the present, right? And so that's how I teach that first one is, and I can do that workshop over about two hours or um in the course, I just recently did it over three weeks. And then in ORID, or uh, with the focus conversation, what we're doing is because, you know, it's all about movement building is I wanted to read a textbook about Indigenous movement building. And so the textbook we actually read is Sarah Deer's book, The Beginning and End of Rape, which is about a very difficult subject uh, around sexual violence against Indigenous women and girls and queer and two-spirit people. And, you know, this is, a, again, it's a really difficult topic. And so I ran this workshop once before, and it was really incredible. It was, it was probably one of the best classes that I ever had. And, you know, I knew it was going to be really difficult. And so, you know, I was thinking through it from the standpoint of like, okay, what kind of resources do I put in place? And like, okay, I'm going to do a smudge, which is a, you know, kind of a ceremonial activity that people do on the prairies to kind of like cleanse a, a space. But then I was like, should I even be the one leading this conversation on this book? And, and I thought, no. But also it's important for me to kind of also take on the response, even though, you know, like I'm straight, cis, white passing male professor, it is important for me to, to help that responsibility of teaching about these very difficult concepts. I shouldn't just ignore it, especially because this is the best book on movement building in Indigenous studies. And so what I did is set up a classroom where people learn how to conduct a focused conversation, how to set up that conversation on themselves, and then the students lead the conversation for themselves. And so that's right now is the is the actually the current unit that we're in is a three-week unit where I'm building up the students' ability to lead a conversation, to lead the seminar, and then the students will lead the seminar. Well, it's all leading up to our seminar on that book. And you know, there's like no other readings except for 
learning about focus conversation, just to give people, because I said, it's really important that we all read this book together, right? And that we're, because this is the, the focus of the, the conversation here. And then the students will propose different seminar questions and lead the seminar themselves that day. And so that's, that's how I teach these, what are methods that have nothing to do with Indigenous politics, uh, and then infuse Indigenous politics into them. That's great. It, it feels like you're really sort of asking and inviting students to step into this content, because we know that that's actually where you build meaning and purpose, and you actually understand concepts and find the passion to actually work for some of these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I told students, like, I said, this is where that we have to have a great deal of responsibility in this unit, because issues of sexual assault and violence will have affected people in this classroom, either personally or their close family members, guaranteed. Like, there's no question about that, that this is something that people have experienced at a very personal level. And I said, you know, the the purpose of this is not to discuss it individually or to to discuss your your individual experience with it, if if that's the background that you're coming from. Uh, And, you know, I, I shared within my own family how some of these things have affected my family but I said but I'm not going to talk about it anymore because I typically don't talk about these things and the purpose of this conversation is to really is to focus on this book right and so it's up to you how you engage in your conversation with this book my responsibility is to create a space where you feel supported and comfortable in having these very difficult conversations and part of the way in which we do that is I'm going to, the, the, one of the main focuses of the unit is me giving you the skills of how to lead a conversation on your own. I guess, you know, if I was going to pick up just really quickly on how, you know, your question about how I connect with communities, one of the big things I do or I try to think about is what does it mean to approach to do scholarship where you consider yourself a generalist, right? So you have a wide range of, of skills that you try to take on and not try to be a specialist, right? Because I, I think that's kind of where the university tries to lead you is to become a specialist where you carve out your area of expertise where you're the authority, right? Like, and, and oftentimes, like, you want to be the worldwide authority on this on this one thing, and, and that's what you do. And, you know, one of the nice things about there's, you know, a lot of job competition for Indigenous scholars in Canada at the moment, and so it's given me a little bit of space to maybe not, or to uh, ignore, <laughs> even maybe refuse some of the requirements of the university. And and one of the ways in which I I think I've been lucky enough to do that is to think through what my scholarship and uh, teaching looks like from the standpoint of being a generalist. And I think that's what actually helps make me relevant to communities is that communities don't want somebody who's the world expert in, you know, one area of knowledge or, or information. Communities want somebody who they can ask for advice and, and to work with and engage with in a wide range of, of things and with learning all of these community methods, but also, you know, still trying to keep up with scholarship in a very sincere way, but in, you know, a very broad way as well, that I, you know, I hope what it does is it allows me to create research partnerships where with communities where we build things together, right? And it's not just me being directed by communities or me telling communities what I think, but that because I bring so much to the table that we can, you know, create all these important things together. And, and I got really nice validation of that recently. I, I was contacted by a group in Ontario and I said, yeah, sure, I'd be uh, happy to talk with you. If you want, you can read a chapter of my PhD dissertation, which is like, from a scholarly standpoint, I know for a fact my PhD dissertation is not that good. Like, I, I don't think my committee was like particularly impressed with it. But I, 
I, but I also, I, I was, I couldn't just not get out of my head that the people I was writing for were community members. Right. And so in, in some ways I was trying to write in a clear and straightforward way and an inspiring way too, about, you know, how communities could take up some of these ideas around relational governance and like, you know, building like walk movements, as I call them, like movements where we like refuse kind of some of the exclusive ways of thinking about our governance, like where we, you know, draw our authority as being like hermetically sealed in our citizenship borders and, and try to think in a relational way how our communities are connected to each other. And so I was really happy because the person who got a hold of me when I sent my dissertation, she read the chapter that I suggested, but then she said she just kept reading into the next chapter. And then that was the end of the dissertation. And then she went back and started reading earlier parts of the dissertation. And so I was like, I it, part of me, I was like, okay, good. Like I, all that difficulty I had in not writing the world's greatest scholarly dissertation is paying off because somebody was able to really connect with what I was saying here so who you know who's working kind of like in the front lines of community governance that's great you gave our listeners a lot to think about thank you so much for your time we really appreciate everything that you shared with us and spending your afternoon with us yeah thank you awesome. so much i'm really excited by all of the things that matt said in this interview and about how like some of these experiences that we have outside of the academy with like organizing and collective project making can find new life in the classroom as pedagogical strategies. And so like, uh, you know, Matt talking about his own history as like doing youth organizing as part of the way that he approaches speaking with youth Mm -hmm. makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. And also is, I think, not so much how we are trained pedagogically as, as instructors, right? We're sort of outside of that, I think, mm-hmm. all too frequently. And it's a great reminder of the ways that there are a variety of like non-academic spaces that and techniques that are so, so good at mm-hmm. developing like tools and strategies and diagnostics for use in the classroom that really deserve more prominence in, in yeah. academic spaces than I think they get. Yeah, I, I actually thought that as well. And one of the things I noticed was, you know, when you're working in communities and there's sort of a a divisive conversation, you can't really just leave it untied up. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you when you're in community, you sort of have to find some resolution where people feel good about moving forward. And this is where I think that, you know, he was mentioning um, giving students license to share the hurt that they've experienced, right? And that making sure people, no matter what their background is, whether they're from that oppressed group or not, that they're all feeling comfortable to engage and say something, whether it's non-Indigenous people not feeling like they're going to say something wrong or Indigenous people having to feel like an authority all the time. To me, that space, it's so simple. It seems like it's so practical, but you really get that in the real world, so to speak, Mm -hmm. right? When you're working with communities that you know you just can't open up wounds and sort of isolate half the population or more. So to me, I think that there is not only just sort of this approach from outside the classroom, but even its sensibilities, you know, that you can't alienate more than half the population. So I thought that was really interesting that he shared that. Yeah. And it also, it also makes me think about like some of the ways that I think we talk about structures of power, like heteropatriarchy, racism, or settler colonization sometimes like suggest that like, oh, well, everything is great for all the straight white men. They can have no problems, right? There's no pain. There's no hurt that is associated with those positions. And I think like that 
kind of, I don't know, like inability to also think about the way that capitalism and white supremacy are also tied up in forms of violence, even toward people who benefit from those systems Mm -hmm. is like part of the reason that some students I think are really like have a kind of allergic reaction to thinking about some of these concepts in their own experience and also in their education. And like, sort of Matt's framing of thinking about the kind of non-equatable different forms of harm that people Mm -hmm. experience and the ability to share that I think really is a is a pretty different frame from the like women and people of color are oppressed white men are fine sort of framing that I think some of the more reductive approaches Mm -hmm. to these structures often take which is not to say that they're like you know, we also have to be attentive to the power dynamics in the relationship between forms of hurt and the patterns of them and the severity and to what extent, right, people are valorized or rewarded for suffering a certain kind of hurt and Mm. pain versus further penalized and marginalized for it. But as a way to open the door into having that conversation, it sounds like a really useful reframe, not as an endpoint, but as a beginning. Obviously, really complex. It's not the same outcome, but I, I see what you're saying, especially, you know, it almost is too easy just to say, well, we're good people, you're bad people. Totally. Right. And then you never actually get to understand the nuance and the lived experience of, a, of an oppression or of a situation. Yeah. And it's like, it's not like, you know, those who grow up in the world and are made into like, you know, like straight masculinity itself is like full of violence and full mm-hmm. of hurt and full of like, expectations that are impossible to maintain. And that like, just thinking about teaching my own classes in gender, we talk about this a lot, like the, you can't show any emotion sort of vision of masculinity is itself a form of violence that is imposed on men that has its own series of, of effects. And we can think about something like heteropatriarchy and hold the different violences that men and non-men are subjected to in a non-equatable way as like a way to open up the idea that like really, you know, some people might get some like some benefits from these systems of oppression and domination, but ultimately we're also harmed by them, even in the course of being given certain kinds of benefits. And I think that really complicated fleshy space is a really powerful pedagogical place to be in at really making the argument about like why it's important for all of us, no matter what our situation is in in relationship to these structures, to study them, to understand them, to critique them. Mm -hmm. And for those of us who enter them into positions of power to disidentify with and reject them and work to dismantle them. I think that's a good analysis of what he said, because I don't think he explicitly said that, but you're definitely diving deeper into it. I know that he sort of anchored on the notion of hurt, which is exactly what we're talking about, harm. And I like the idea that he assumes that all of the people in this class, all the students, have had different experiences with hurt. Mm-hmm. Right? He said that hurt in the world is not exclusive to one group of people. And through that hurt, through that harm, they're able to find some element of commonality. In previous conversations we've had, Ashley, I think another space of commonality has been sort of this, you know, the the student's highest aspiration, what Mm -hmm. person they want to be. So I found it interesting that you have these two commonalities. One is around hurt or harm, recognizing that we're all harmed by the system, not necessarily just because we're in some type of uh, location that we're innocent. 
And then conversely, working towards, I think what Matt would talk about, he he mentioned like this destructive competition versus a, a wholesome venture together. And I think that points at what is your highest aspiration? What type of relationships and communities and partnerships do you want? Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting, these two touch points of strategies of commonality in a classroom. Yeah. And, you know, like this isn't Matt's language, but the way I think about this is like, mm-hmm. what does it take to build a coalition, right? Yeah. And to like really maintain coalitions of change in the world. And I think it requires exactly this, like both recognizing, you know, the sort of, I don't know, like commonality of having experienced harm or hurt and recognizing the differences in the ways that those harms and hurts can play out and being invested in each other enough to work together to overcome them in the specific ways that they play out for all of us. Yeah. That's always the tough part, right? Being vested enough in each other. And I think that's where he's talking about creating this safe space, this comfortable community to try to get people to care about each other. Because of course we see in more popular discourse that uh, it's too easy to shoot out a 140 character text or tweet or something like that and not care about the people that are reading it. Yeah. And it's also like, I think so easy to take on the language of social justice without the real like grounded practice of empathy and compassion and Mm -hmm. listening and reflecting. I don't know. I I think sometimes when students get a lot of the content, right, of critiques of systems of power without that other element, then sometimes it's like, are we just creating a kind of professional, educated class of people conversant in a certain kind of social justice vernacular, Mm -hmm. but without actually developing the lived skills and strategies of working against that? And like, that's what I, you know, Matt, like mentioned, like sometimes in the humanities, we're too quick to cede the ground of skills Mm. to, you know, a critique of neoliberalism. And I, I think there's something real about that, that like, It's not just the language. It's not just the analysis that students should come out of a university education with, but it's also the skills to mobilize and and work against those powers. And part of what that means is really being able to tell a story, being able to hear a story, being able to be affected by each other. Mm -hmm. I think we don't emphasize that enough. Yeah. I mean, what struck me was when he said that he approaches things as a group facilitation and he brings the students through a sort of journey to let them feel like they're accomplishing something through a tough group conversation, right? The mm-hmm. notion of feeling good afterwards. I think about how foregrounding that sentiment of making sure that the students feel good afterwards would really transform how we approach a classroom. However, when I say feel good, I'm not, I'm not thinking that, you know, you speak about things all peachy and clean and not in a really dirty way or a complex way, but actually thinking about engaging that complexity, engaging that deep critique, which is necessary, but still allowing everyone to step through it with a sense of accomplishment that they're able to actually leave feeling good afterwards. I think that would be a really unique classroom outcome that isn't always present in our thinking of how we're we're structuring classes. Totally. I mean, I remember my own experience as an undergrad. I was taking a class and it was like really my first class that I was taking on structural power. 
And I felt like I had this like great insight, huge light bulb moment. I went to my professor and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like spattered off a bunch of like really, you know, like uh, electric excited comments in a way that only a like, you know, bright eyed (laughs) newbie can. And what he said to me was like, oh yeah, but actually it's so much worse. Like it's so much worse than you can even understand right now. (laughs) And there was something really deflating about that. Yeah. Which I think was like intended actually, I think from my professor's perspective, it was intended to be like push harder, push farther, Mm. go deeper, which I totally recognize and understand now. But I think there's something about the like allowing students to really like feel and marinate in the sense of like, I have untangled something that is complicated. Mm. I have a sense of satisfaction of having worked through a text or a problem or a scenario or whatever it is. Right. And like, I've gained something out of that and allowing them to connect with that feeling of accomplishment, even if the accomplishment is like, I have accomplished understanding that the world is like way more messed up than I thought it was. (laughs) Right. Is actually probably something that's really important to cultivate. Like those moments of feeling good, not like Mm -hmm. in the lollipops and rainbows sense, but in the like, I did something that was worthwhile. This is useful. This Mm -hmm. is not just armchair deconstruction for Mm -hmm. academics sake or something. Like I am learning something. I'm gaining something. I'm growing in some way from this. And like that feeling I think is probably really important. And you have to say that that feeling probably ever so more now at this current moment. Oh my God. Think of (laughs) of some of our students. They've been a year or two in quarantine or at least living with COVID. And then we have all of these racial conversations and injustices and murders happening again. We have rise in gun violence again. You know, some of the young students that we've had, including, you know, some of our young colleagues, it's been a moment of crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis. You know, it's almost like you would want to give students the opportunity to step into some joy, to step into some of of that sort of, uh, you know, the euphoria you get when you're unpacking something uncomplex where you feel like you're actually moving the needle. You would think that students need that now more than more than ever, at least more than any time that I have been teaching. I think they need it now. Yeah, the the you know really amazing abolition organizer Miriam Kaba often says like allow this to radicalize you rather than to lead you in despair. I really think about that when I I think about my students like how am I approaching this like very deep, hard, heavy material in a way that doesn't just leave them with a sense of impotence and despair. Like my goal is not to bum them out. Yeah. And I but and I feel it sometimes with them, right? Like I feel sometimes in the classroom that talking about complicated power structures, hierarchies, inequalities, structural violence that like they get the sense that the reason we are talking about this is to break their bubble of, <laughs> you know, safety and security and to kind of bum them out a bit. Yeah. And I think sort of emphasizing the like, no, this is about helping us engage on and embark on a collective project mm-hmm. rather than about leading you just to despair was something that I really liked about what Matt said. Yeah, that's exactly what I think, you know, in different words that he was trying to do, right? Or is trying to do or does this feeling good afterwards is is about this idea of radicalizing and energizing and not just leaving them, you know, deep in a hole that says we can't work together. Um, Because I know he mentioned that his university has a lot of indigenous presence. 
mm-hmm. which is very different from a lot of universities down here in the United States. But that would be a really nice outcome to a lot of the consultations I've seen across different, where if people can feel like they're embarking on a co-constituted project and they're feeling good afterwards, they're feeling energized rather than just sort of feeling hopeless or at, at loggerheads. Not a, not an easy, not an easy thing to accomplish by any means, but I think it's certainly the right orientation. Yeah. The other thing that I really appreciated, he said towards the end of our conversation was that he he really takes a focus on being a generalist, Mm -hmm. right? Rather than someone who's a specialist and to us and to almost everyone who who's gone through the disciplining process of getting a PhD, that sounds crazy. Right. I mean, of course, when we take our qualifying exams, we become this generalist within a field. And then hey, speak we... for yourself. I took no qualifying exams. <laughs> well, the trauma that I still hold from qualifying exams really forced me to think about how to how to be able to at least have some cogent answer to almost anything in the field. Mm-hmm. But like the idea of being okay with putting the mantle of expert aside out of the desire to be useful to the communities that you serve, I mm-hmm. think is a very refreshing and unique perspective. One that no doubt, no doubt, no doubt is, is reflected in his teaching. It's, it's one of these things where he could talk about all sorts of different things, but when he describes his classroom, you can, you can be assured that when questions arise about any sort of topic around indigeneity and settler colonialism, he's at least able to kind of connect the dots to maybe a theme that's you know, more relevant to the class or directly on the class. Yeah, and I think that ethos is really important in teaching because often students are not after, like when they're asking questions, they're not necessarily so interested in the hyper-specific micro differences Mm. between me and the argument I'm having with five other PhDs on the planet. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, Like once we get in, you know, there is something that is like cool, I think about our specializations and the ability to get really angry about super teeny tiny like differences in opinions that kind of seem absurd when you talk about them out of context. But really in terms of teaching, that specialization is only helpful insofar as you can mobilize it to larger conversations that students Mm -hmm. are interested in having. And that is like helpful for where they're at, I think. Yeah. Right. It's like bringing things together. I was reading a book about birds actually and it talked about how knowledge and information is just about things versus wisdom helps you bring all of that together. And I think that bringing together is sort of the stuff that we're not really good at as academics. Mm-hmm. We're good at the analyzing, but we're not necessarily good at connecting those dots or at least inviting people to connect the dots. And I think, of course, that also has to do with ego, right? We, totally. we train all of these years to never be able to say, I don't know. I don't know the answer. And this is close to my specialty. But, you know, you have to have that humility or one could have that humility. It seems like Matt does as well. Strive to be a generalist, to help people connect dots and be open to, you know, other people's explorations of connecting those dots. For our listeners who don't know, Justin knows more about birds than anyone else I have ever (laughs) encountered in my life. (laughs) Well, I think some of the really innovative stuff is around, there's some feminist geographers who talk about birding as an act of placemaking as an act of belonging, an act of homemaking. And so in that sense, you know, my work is about belonging. It's about who belongs, who doesn't, how we see each other, how we other each other, and then also ultimately how we connect with each other. 
I mean, not, not to try to shoehorn this in there, but I think there is something about that that actually really connects to what Matt was saying Mm. about like the ability to make a place for students to find themselves in the course material, in the reading thematic, and not just to find themselves, but to find each other and to find Mm. a way to connect inside the classroom and inside course material. And I think that's like, in a, like in a, a, a different way of saying part of what his project is that I find mm-hmm. really alluring and really exciting. Yeah, it almost felt like, uh, you know, those idealized summer camps where he was talking about how he works with youth and then all of a sudden he brings it into the classroom and they have this experience where afterwards they're all friends and they actually believe that something new can be built together. Yeah, absolutely find that sense of belonging. You know, one comment I would say here is, so I've had the opportunity to work with Matt recently. We, we just co-authored a paper around creative sovereignty in, in the journal Borderlands. And that's about, I think that came out in October, 2020, but it was just really released early 2021. And one of the things that he mentioned in conversation was this idea that there's no interpretive innocence. And mm-hmm. it's exactly like what we've already talked about where, you know, there's no one group that is completely innocent that completely can say like, okay, we're the wrong ones in totality and it's black and white. And what was really cool to see was how he actually takes that perspective and moves it into a collaborative space. So mm-hmm. for him, it, you know, he, he, he had mentioned the idea multiple times that when we move into a room or when we go into a classroom or when we go into a research space, there's no sort of position of innocence. There's no position of objectivity that no matter how objective you think you are, you're still influencing the thought in the room. You're still influencing the decisions that that group makes. So because of that, you shouldn't have the idea that you can somehow magically sort of slide behind someone and just let them, you know, do their thing or sort of be a read, like a hollow read to allow someone else's voice to go through you Mm -hmm. because you're an embodied researcher and you're affecting that relationship. So what I really love about him is that not only in his classroom, seemingly, but then also personally, I know in a collaborative relationship is actually about saying, look, we're connecting, we're in a shared space, a shared room. What are you bringing to the table? And then from that, how do we leave that space as different people? So I'm talking about this in a collaborative way, but it seems like it's the exact same way that he's constructing his classes, right? It's not one particular expert. It's all of us coming into a room What are our skill sets? What are our pains? What are our hurts? What are our highest aspirations? And then how do we step out of the classroom as different people that are influenced and constructed by each other's experiences and knowledges and and, and so on? Yeah, I think, you know, not to get too far down on the research road, but like a theme that continually comes up on this podcast and in our conversations Mm -hmm. is how you know, the research that we do is connected to the work that we do in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time we think about that as like, oh, okay, how am I implementing the ideas that I'm researching in the classroom? But I think what you're talking about with Matt is actually then like one level deeper, which Mm -hmm. is like, then how do I take the collaborative pedagogical sort of unlockings that I'm doing in the classroom? And how am I feeding that back into my research and my like collaborative relationships with my colleagues? How am I like taking lessons from what it means to be like an open collaborative 
interested, humble Mm -hmm. human being in relationship to my students, and then mirroring that with my colleagues. And I think we do way too little of that. Way too little. Way too little. Way too little. I remember having a conversation with um, John Paul Lederach, one of the sort of founding figures of of peace studies. But he mentioned that um, as teachers, we don't need to develop people that can analyze better or that can write better. But what we really need as academics is to develop good people, good people doing this teaching, good people doing the research. And I think that what you just mentioned there, your assessment, Ashley, where it's sort of, you know, continuity through and through, not only through research, but also through his teaching, right? That's an example of how are we finding space to be a good person in all the fronts that we engage this academic world, teaching included. I think we should end there. That's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Pedagogies for Peace, Intersectional and Decolonial Teaching was made possible by the support of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. The music is by David Hazardous, and the podcast is produced and distributed by Hannah Heinzaker. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.